So, this panel was originally supposed to be called The Future of DJing, but I thought that sounded a little bit too prophetic and ridiculous, so we changed it to something less definitive. It's now really the topic of the state of DJing and sort of where is it today, what's changing, and where is it going? And I specifically asked all these people to join the panel because there's an interesting concept I'd like to share with you of understanding the orange. If, uh, for example, I'm trying to understand exactly what this water container looks like or is, and I don't have the ability to walk around and look at it, the only way I can truly understand what it looks like, and in this case it represents DJing, is if I ask people on different sides of it, hey, what does it look like from your side? You know, over there on the right side of the water container, is it watery? Is it rusted? Is it broken? And so today we're going to look at different sides of the state of DJing and sort of ask ourselves, what is it exactly? Is it broken? Is it watered down? <laughs> is it awesome? So we've got four different people with four unique perspectives. And I will start from my left to my right. First up, why don't you introduce yourself to the group and... Uh, Tell us who you are. We've got I'm Clark. Clark Warner, Executive Creative Director at Bport. I'm based in Denver. I'm Amanda Warner, no relationship, <laughs> and I'm MNDR. So we've got the, the music buying perspective. You know, what are people buying? How are they behaving on these sites? What does that whole thing look like? We've got the artist perspective. And then to my right, we have a gentleman who's been throwing a lot of parties, amazing parties throughout the Bay Area for many, many years, Jason. Yeah, I'm Jason Sperling. I'm the founder of SkillsDJ.com. We do arena-style electronic music events in the Bay Area. And finally, leading up the pack, we've got a new entrant, Seth Goldstein, who had a big hit with Turntable FM and recently started something called DJs.com. Tell us about DJs and what you guys are focused on. Uh, so DJZ is the largest destination for EDM fans around the world. And we're also starting to build applications and services to allow people to learn how to DJ and to create music and mix it and share it with their friends. We, we focus on 13 to 21 year olds, folks that probably aren't old enough and don't have the dough to go to Coachella or EDC, but are nevertheless behind their screens all the time and hopefully engaging with our products. What I found interesting about Seth's perspective is that of the next generation, what are the kids that are 10 years old, 11 years old, 12 years old, what are they into? What do they like? What are they not like? How is that changing? Because I think that's going to be a big impact on, on where things go in the future. So once again, we're looking at, you know, what is the state of DJing? Where are we at today? And my unique perspective, for those of you who aren't familiar with my work, is my name is Ian Golden, and I started a website called DJ Tech Tools about seven years ago. And we invent controllers, we talk about cool stuff, we feature rad artists, and overall we're just trying to make the whole DJ community a better place. So I'd like to start off, first of all, with the next generation of DJs. You said something earlier, Seth, that was kind of funny. You said they don't want to be Zuckerberg, they want to be Dead Mouse. And you've got a, a 10-year-old son. Mm -hmm. 11. 11, who's just started DJing, and he's... Who generated some dough for you for his birthday because we bought a Tractor S2 from DJ Tech Tools. <laughs> <laughs> Paying the bills. What, what's his paradigm? What's his perspective? From your side of the table, what does DJing look like today? So the, our journey for DJs came out of a a couple different touch points. I'm, I'm not, I, I don't even pretend to, to know a lot about DJing the art form the way that you do and a lot of people here do. And hats off to Beatport and others that have been doing this for a long time. All I know is through seeing Bass Nectar at, at Burning Man a couple years ago, 
observing the growth of turntable and seeing which rooms were really popping. One of the early most popular rooms was a room called Coding Soundtrack, where a lot of some of the uh, Silicon Valley companies like Twitter and Facebook, some of their engineers were in. And it wasn't a genre. I mean, it wasn't hip hop or dance. It was just anything that they thought was useful for coding to. And a lot of Skrillex, and I didn't know how to spell Skrillex or Deadmau5. And then my kids, I have an 11-year-old now and a 13-year-old, and they were starting to search, come back from school and asking what dubstep is and going on the internet. And it was just a mess. And so the first thought was, you know, how do you aggregate, you know, e even these shamelessly popular acts that are more like pop than, than DJs. So Calvin Harris and David Guetta and Avicii, and just kind of giving it a container for people that really aren't in the know, but are this next generation to come to and then start to introduce them to more progressive artists, the, the Diplos and the Pretty Lights and the Boys Noises. And then through that, I saw with my son, I mean, part of it just wanting to be closer to his dad. He's like, Dad, I want to learn how to DJ. So what do you do if, you're, if your kid wants to, is 11 and wants to DJ? There are some schools online or offline. You can send them to like DJ Camp or Dubspot. But online, it's just a maze, right? And so over the last month or two since he got the tractor and Ian and some of the folks at DJs were happy and were sort of helpful enough to give him some tutorials. It's a maze online of tutorials of video and there's a lot on DJ Tech Tools. But the progression has been just sliding that slider back and forth and Swedish House Mafia meets Bangarang over and over and over again. But then before you know it, he gets a little smarter about which songs get curated in. So in comes Original Dawn and Harlem Shake before it broke last week. And, and then he uploads to SoundCloud. And lo and behold, you know, two little interesting moments. So he has 800 listens on his last SoundCloud. He doesn't know where they come from. But even more interestingly, he has some trolls. He has some haters. Like, why the fuck are you mixing this? And they don't know he's 11. But it's really the full circuit now of kind of moving from you know, playing Xbox Madden to kind of going through this process and the dopamine effect of putting something up on SoundCloud. He's not making music, he's just remixing it and getting that feeling of people paying attention and people hearting it and liking it makes him want to get back you know, in the studio downstairs and not play Xbox and, and focus on that instead. One thing I want to point out that I forgot to mention is I really want to make this a, a two-way conversation or a group conversation. So uh, respectfully and kindly, if you want to get involved, please do. Just raise your hand and we'll defer to you. If you have a question or a comment about it, keep them short and to the point if you can so we don't, we don't hijack too much of the conversations of other people. But I really would like to include everyone and you guys as that critical fifth party on you know what does the other side of the orange look like. I want to hear from you as well. So keep that in mind. You know, I want to open it up to the, to the rest of the panel and ask you, what are some of the biggest trends or shifts that you've seen in DJing from your particular perspective over the last six months, uh, six to 12 months, anything really notable or, or important? I'll jump in kind of on the retail example. Um, a big part of the shift, I think, is just, in, for Bport at least, is traffic and search, the increase in people searching for context. You know, B-Port's a place where if you're a pro DJ, you're playing often, you come here every week like you would, uh, just looking for your fresh tools to use in your sets. And, but what's changing is the, this, this new shift, I think, is that genres are starting to mash up more and more, where DJs are having a little bit more flexibility today, I think. And that, I think that harkens back to the younger generation of just having less boundaries. It's not so much of a niche where 
they say I'm a tech house DJ and that's all they play. Um, if they can throw in a, a rap or hip hop track in their set, if they can put in something that's more funky breaks or loops, the DJs that are this next generation coming up don't have those hurdles in their brains. It's it, that, to me, we're, we're seeing that with just people, people are searching for on the store and also the, the type of content that they're buying. But primarily it's, it's something's really changed in the last two years, not just last six months. But DJing has become electric again and the mystique and the mystery and the magic of putting two rec- records together or putting four channels together or whatever you're using, tools or gear, that part's exploded. You said so, you said the last two months. What's happened in the last two months that's marked? I said last two years, actually. Last two years, okay. Is there anything in particular that you've noticed that's made it more electric? What can you point to and say, whoa, that was big? I think the stage has gotten bigger. You know, there's literally the stage has gotten, is expanded at festivals. It's not just one style of music at a festival anywhere in the world anymore. It's different stages. Stages have added days. Festivals have added weekends for, I don't know how people actually work, but... If you can take two weekends off in one month and go to the same festival twice, great. But the demand for this talent to have a place to play has gone through the roof. Um, so that's just, just testament to, I think, the, the, the amount of music and the amount of new producers who are doing interesting things has elevated. Would it, Jason, let's pull the, talk about that for a moment, the festivals and the shows and the demand. You've got a big show com, coming up at the Oracle Arena with 15,000 people. And you do big shows. Is that demand growing? Is it stalled out? What, what is the trend? What is no, that? It, it's definitely growing. And there's this big bubble of these A-list artists that are just growing and growing and growing and filling places like the Warfield and then moving to the Bill Graham. And, and then we do our shows at Oracle. And, of course, there's huge, way bigger festivals happening um, in the West Coast and United States. And um, it's just it's so exciting to be around this time to see all these new influx of people coming and not just coming to a big event but coming to see a specific specific artist and to pay all that money to see one artist and they're waiting and waiting and they know the songs they're very in tune with it and it's a really great time to be uh, a motor it's right place at the right time is right now I was wondering uh, if, uh, in particular, Beatport charts, if you look at the API, the number of charts that DJs were publishing in previous years uh, are basically minuscule compared to the last two years. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the phenomenon of charts uh, helping to break artists, um, and in particular, Beatport's charts. It's the biggest music discovery tool on our service, I think, for DJs. They have that kinship. They want to know what their what their peers are playing and also what their heroes are playing. So that was a, kind of an insular channel for a long time until we opened up the DJ profiles on the store to give anyone the power to publish their own chart and give them their voice, what they're playing today, what their top 10 classic house tracks might be. So it's opened it up by volume. And then, of course, uh, with that comes a lot of charts for people that might not get noticed, but it's a super exciting feature for us to actually see how that data influences people just getting noticed like you mentioned it's so much different a great chart can be if you put a lot of time and effort into it just like programming a dj set will get you noticed 
I think that brings up an important trend that, that everyone here has talked about, which is that people are no longer searching for music by a specific uh, clean box that it used to be put in. People are searching for music by context, as Clark said. They're looking for trap music. Well, what is trap music exactly? It could be a lot of different things. It could be electronic. It could be hip-hop. It could blend. And Jason, you said a lot of DJs are, are not <coughs> sticking so cleanly to one line of, of playing. They're kind of playing across the board, especially the younger ones, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, they, you know, at least in the Bay Area electronic scene, I, I noticed that a lot of the younger up-and-coming artists, DJs, um, aren't sticking to one genre. They're going, they're moving around a lot, keeping that dance floor lit up. And I think they feel that pressure um, because they want to be booked next week that they got to play the biggest next track, every track, every track, every track. So it doesn't really get a chance like back in the day where things kind of dipped down and built back up, which you would see a, a progressive or a house DJ playing at a club do something like that. And it's just, you know, hands in your air all night long at these clubs. Um, and it's exciting. I mean, you know, people have short attention spans, and I think it's very relevant for what's happening right now. Amanda, let's turn to you. How are things from the artist perspective? Uh, what does the landscape look like right now and what's been significant? Um, well, I guess when MNDR started sort of in a pop realm in New York, like in two, 2009 at Fader Fort CMJ, um, I did a Ableton set. I've been using Ableton since it came out. It was one of the beta testers on the software. And um, it was interesting because uh, at that point, which was, I guess, three, four years ago, it was... I had a lot of negative response about, well, what is this? Like, what are you doing? Is it this or is it that? Is it a band or is it this? And now, especially in like the last year, uh, hybrid artists like myself that are um, doing uh, straight ahead songwriting, but but the live set is sort of a, a full hybrid of, of uh, song and, and pop song and DJ. Um, mixing that you're seeing those type of artists getting like big record deals and that gray area is now more accepted and it's probably just based upon that the kids it's not strange to kids to not see they don't need it to be so defined so the which is great so your fan base is driving that to be like a respected and sort of legitimate art form where three years ago it was well are you a band or are you this it was more of a negative thing have you guys noticed that in particular in your own spheres that uh, it's no longer are you a band, are you a DJ? We had this promise with Ableton. Everyone was talking about it, you know, eight, nine years ago. Oh, the end of a performer and a DJ. Uh, it's no longer going to be these separate camps. They're going to merge together in this one beautiful single person. And it didn't really happen uh, for a while. Have we finally reached that point now where they're sort of the same person? I wanted to do like a little interactive feature on DJs where like you'd have to match the pronoun to the the name like is Cruella a person or a, a band is Flux Pavilion like I don't even know I could go through a list of 60 and some are you know individual solo performers and some really are a band but they're definitely united in so far as they're you know producing mixes Jason, do you find your, your fans um, or the people attending your shows are they looking at the stars of today as uh, performers and bands and acts or do they think of them as DJs and you know is that term even relevant anymore I'm not sure if it's too relevant I think <clears throat> their favorite artist is what they're producing 
the music they're making is it their favorite tracks um on top of like coming to the whole experience of a show it's i think the the uh what what the artist is producing is bringing their fan base and then there's some people who really take it to the next level like Stevie Oki, which will climb up on something and jump really high down and make it even more exciting and throw a cake. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's, it's huge right now. It's, I, I can't even come up with the right word to describe how quickly this has blown up. I've been doing this for 20 years and the last three years, it's like every year it doubles or triples. So, I mean, I think the, elephant in the room is just is computers and mobile like you know there's a time when like pcs in the you know 80s not everybody had them and then pretty soon everybody had one so on two levels um i think those in the industry get challenged a lot by investors or the press oh is this just a fad is like disco is this niche gonna give way and i don't think so because i think it's, it's becoming horizontal which is you're starting to see the, the way that EDM is produced with computers, with some of this hardware, is starting to impact or infect, depending on how you think of it, hip hop and, and other genres. So it's really cutting across. Um, so it is starting to proliferate. Um, it may not be a bubble. It just may be that every single form of music, with the exception of certain you know, acoustic sort of chambers within this ecosystem, is going to be mediated with computers and then social media does what labels and other people used to do which is promotion distribution you can sell music that way um, you know we think in terms of DJs like how do you build an audience well it's entirely through what we call OPF like other people's feeds so MTV 20 30 years ago needed to deal with Liberty and John Malone and TCI to get distribution across all of the uh, cable stations around the country you can't do that now, there is no one point of a pipe. What you need is you need dead mouse to tweet about you, right? Um, you need uh, the artists themselves to promote the media, the festivals, the hardware, you name it. You can't pay them because if you can pay them, they're probably not legitimate, authentic artists. You can't beg them. You just have to do good work and you have to be, um, you know, we had a funny thing happen on Thursday where, you know, we always track our traffic and we just blew up on Thursday. We had an article, it was like a nothing article about five, the five funniest stage antics in EDM. The Aoki cake and the, I think it was Flux Pavilion did something with bananas on stage and, and DJ Blend did something too. And he retweeted it. And we just got a thousand people show up at the site, which is way more than we usually have at that particular moment. So you just don't know what the artists themselves really think is cool and what they're going to engage with. Um, I'd like to talk about that elephant in the room, iPads and iOS. Um, but before we jump into that topic, which is an awesome one, uh, we have a question over here. So I'd like to defer to you. Yeah, I was just going to say, it seems like there still is maybe a division, not between band and DJ, but in, and you talked about this in this room in October, um, sort of now the computer and the MIDI controller, these are real instruments and, and recognized as such. But now it's like, are you a button pusher or are you actually playing live, regardless of the instrument? Producers who are playing live and, and actually controlling parameters and filters in real time are still seem to have that respect a little more than somebody who's just queuing tracks back to back. Can you be more specific on the question? 
Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? It, it's not really. It wasn't really a question, but um, just a comment, I guess. Sorry. Okay. Um, well, I can. We were talking about this earlier about how um, a lot of the more popular acts and a lot of the more underground acts that are coming up are doing a lot of exciting things on stage, right? Yeah, I think like someone. I mean, I've been involved doing electronic music since the nineties, and uh, um, it like. I certainly know people that are my age and older, very successful that I, I've DJed with Ableton, I've DJed vinyl, I've DJed with Tractor. And I think, I think what is happening right now is there is a camp that's like, oh, Ableton, it's not, you, they, they beat match. Like DJing isn't just about beat matching anymore. That's just <coughs> over. That's not what, it, it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. That skill set is not as important as it was originally, which was more the art, art form, how you would blend and how you would bring the records in together and how they would mesh together. Now it's more about, um, putting your production out there and how you're bringing in like pop culture into that. And the, I, I think the reality is, is like that the younger generation and the people that are going to parties like low end theory just did on Wednesday, they don't care. And if I think if artists get too caught up in like the definition of this is that, and this is this, they're missing the whole point of the connection with the fan base and they're too bogged down in like the definition of this is what I am and this is what you are and that's what this is and that kind of like you miss the grand point of what's actually happening which is the connection and the listener doesn't really care. Jason, Jason had an interesting observation <clears throat> that I was sort of shocked to hear. We've had computers and the ability to go up on stage with a laptop now for about 10 years and for a while it was much much more popular that everyone was using laptops to DJ and it was kind of going up and up and up and up and then you said to me something you noticed about the the acts that take your stages these days what was it? Well you know we do arena style events so it's one room we're trying to get 15,000 people so we we can book five or six acts so every single act is an A-list act <clears throat> I'd say 95% of the time, there's no computers, there's no MIDI controllers. It's just four CDJs, a mixer, and um, a kick-ass monitoring system, and um, playing it very safe. And you said, but that's actually changed. So lately, you've seen a trend back to less laptops, whereas in previous years, there were more laptops. Yes. So they're actually decreasing. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I, you know, I, I think a lot of people didn't think it was cool when people would play off laptops and it's being more accepted now with because people are doing more interesting things than just button pushing <clears throat> and the whole beat matching thing you know if there's a purist out there that came from like the dj world or um you know in the 90s where you you know beat matching was something that not everybody could do some people could learn in a half hour and some people might they never could learn it i taught dj classes and <clears throat> so you know you got a lot of respect if you could DJ and match, beat match, and like how long were you in the mix? That whole thing's just out the window. Now, you know, there's just so many things happening right now. And these artists, they're, most of them are playing their own tracks, their own remixes of their own tracks, other remixes of other artists. And um, it's very straightforward. And the connection between them and the fan base is what I notice what makes an artist successful. How do you see when an artist connects with the fan base? What, what does that show up as? It's not just put your hands up in the air every time there's a breakdown. They'll walk out on stage. They will connect with 
the fans in the front, they will bring them up on stage. They have a smile on their face. They seem approachable. Um, their manager's not sitting right next to them that's protecting them from everybody coming at them. They're just a person just like everybody else. But you're looking up at them with all these lights, and they seem a lot more than like a person. They seem more like a god. And But when you get to meet them and they come out, I mean, it's just it's one of the coolest things to see a, a huge artist step out from the decks and come out and talk to the people in between a breakdown. And you're seeing more and more of that lately. The connection to the fan base and the people that are buying the tickets is so important. Hmm. Interesting. Thank you, Jason. So that's one paradigm, the whole super A-list celebrity DJ with CDJs. But Amanda, you're kind of part of the Brain Feeder group and the Low End Theory group, which is a little bit of a different flavor. People are on stage with controllers banging out tracks and as you said earlier they don't really know if you're a dj or a band or an artist they don't care they just kind of like the music and the group that you're a part of and the people that you know you would associate with like maybe flying lotus and toki monster you guys are up there banging it away you're not just playing tracks you're really doing a lot of live remixing right yes and also like in an mndr set I'll take you like all the way from like electro to house and then I write a lot of ballads so I am a piano player guitar player so I will also like but I'll run that off of Ableton and I can flex my live show out to like a, a solo show a like half DJ half live PA or with a band in it but it all is engined off of like Ableton and all has the spirit of of uh like, I guess, like a DJ set, like a, a remix set, the spirit's there the whole time. So. You know, you sing sometimes, right? You said that you will sing into a mic, do a, do a, a blip of a chorus, then sample it into beat repeat and kind of mess around with it. Yeah. My question is, what's the emotional reaction from the crowd? Are people, do they love that? Does that get a lot of feedback that you wouldn't get if you were just playing a great song that they knew? Well, my MNDR, the album that I have out, I'm not going to promote it, but you can go on my website. I mean, that's not what it, this is about. But Is it on B-Port? It is on Beatport. How's it doing on Beatport? It's totally number one. Fantastic. It's the biggest album on the planet. Which uh, It's the planet's biggest album, so I'm sorry if you don't have it. Which gen- what, what genre would we find it in Beatport? Like which chart? The house chart? Best music. Best music chart, yeah. 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 The best music <laughs> out there. You chart. should buy this today mm-hmm. chart. Okay. I need that chart. So yeah, is it, you know, you're really putting your soul out there. You're taking some risks, you know? Yeah. Well, you my s- project's very, like, song-driven, so I'm singing 90% of the time, I would say. Wow. Yeah, so um, it's interesting. Like at Low End Theory, Toki Monster and I did a, did a record together, and this is just to illustrate an example. And that, that's, like, almost like a ballad. I would say the BPMs are 88, and it's not like a hip-hop track. It's like a, it's like a ballad, and that party is, like, that party is a Wednesday night. I mean, I throw Wednesday night in New York at LeBain called Youth Group. I mean, this, to the door. It, yeah, you can come. But it, in LA, this is a, a weekly Wednesday downtown. And I mean, kids started lining up at 7 p.m. to get in. I can't believe how big that party's gotten. But anyways, like, but those kids are, I mean, that's where Odd Future came, off, uh, came out of and all those groups. And I mean, we did a ballad and it was nuts. I mean, the crowd flipped out. So I think... I think like the the whole genre is just really gray in a really beautiful creative way right now. Nice. Great, yeah. So I'm sort of I've got topic ADD. I like to like swerve over when I hear something cool. And when you said kids line up at 7 a.m. or 7 p.m., it reminded me of something you said, which was 2 a.m. is the new norm. And I think that's a really important hey, what's going on in DJing right now thing to be aware of is that 2 a.m. is the new norm. 
kids line up at 7 p.m., shows are earlier and sets are shorter, right? And how is that affecting how people DJ? That's kind of the question. Sure. Okay. I love that, by the way, because <laughs> I think you, you said something really great that people's attention spans are very short. And it's a great way to get your, your music out there as a producer and as an artist in a very, and try new things in a very f fun and sort of explosion-y kind of way and then you're out and it really makes a big impression on like, and that's sort of what the party goers are used to seeing, like 30 minute sets, 40 minute sets at some of these parties and that's it and that's what they really want. And, and it doesn't blend like, oh, we're at house and then the next house DJ comes in and the next house DJ, it's like, I don't know, they did hard techno and this one's doing like drum and bass and that one's gonna do whatever, you know. So. And the kids are open to that. Yeah, sure, definitely. I mean, uh, at our shows, we, we mix genres. It's like, it used to be where we'd like build the flow and we'd, you know, start off really like, like a club, you know, but a 10 hour running club and, but no, there's, there's no flow. Music stops, next DJ starts, and he does his thing. And the, that's just the way it is. Um, my opinion, I think, is different than a lot of people coming to the show. We probably we won't get into the what's good or bad about that. We're saying this is the, the side of the orange. Wait, Ian, the, the other thing I think it does is um, it slowly moves DJ culture and EDM away from the drug culture of ecstasy and of raves. And I think that was obviously keeping parents away from, you know, fighting their kids not to go. Um, and there's always going to be that counterculture and the kids that run away that, that hide their clothes and then go to the rock concert. Um, but I think there's a younger market. I mean, obviously, it's what we focus on in terms of all ages shows. Um, there are big opportunities there on the live event side. And the other, I think, untapped revenue stream for the, for, for the DJ community is advertising and sponsorship. Um, Primarily, it's ticketing. There's merch, and there's some, you know, recorded revenue as well. Um, but this audience um, in these festivals and, and the level of engagement that they have with the music and with the personalities and the otherwise distractedness that they have. So when they're not at these shows, you can't reach them. They're watching YouTube. They're on Instagram. They're texting. Um, they're on the web. They're using apps. Um, these environments these experiences is a is a very powerful social creative place to reach um to reach this audience and brands up until now i think have been really afraid mm -hmm. because it is druggy and it is a little too far and if it starts to feel safer and a little bit cleaner without losing the authenticity and the sets are earlier and they don't go till 5 a.m in the morning um I, I do think the djs will start to benefit because i think there will be new dollars coming into the system and you think that's going to fuel a continued uh, rise instead of the bubble just popping? I just think uh, diversified revenue streams are always better than non-diversified revenue streams. Interesting. Um, thanks for that point. That's great. Hey, Ian, one, one thing. I was uh, this summer at Red Rocks, and I went two weeks in a row. I went to see Jack White one night and then uh, Pretty Lights the next, like two days later. And I was watching the audience, and, um, and I, I think what Red Rocks probably six or seven times this summer, this season. And um, I was just, I mean, the amount of cell phones in the air at Jack's show was almost none to a degree. Um, and then for Pretty Lights, it was almost every song to the point where you had to kind of, you know, get out of the way. I want to see the video. 
um, and that and that that uh, need for knowledge or understanding or at least time stamping that I was here at this time in this place, especially with electronic music, is always key. Um, so I think that that need for like association, at least with electronic music, is so much different, and it connects with technology to what Seth's saying. But I want to talk about the tech, the uh, the experience of DJing for a little bit in the times for a second, and just to throw contrast on there where in certain clubs in Berlin, you might hear a DJ play for six or seven hours. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's not an easy feat at all. And I think it takes away the, the shock and all DJ set of 45 minutes when it's completely different than at a festival where, you know, to program six or seven hours and keep a dance floor moving for six or seven hours, it's not an easy task. Um, but also means you're going to hear a lot more types of music than just what's hot today in that kind of environment as well. So you got both sides. I mean, I think on this side of the pond, we, we have a up till 2 a.m. more experience um, with the culture, uh, whereas other parts of the world, um, you can get easier lost in music uh, because there's just longer sets and a lot more freedom to play. That's a very good point. Uh, let me ask you a question about Beatport. I'm curious if DJs are playing shorter sets, you know, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, and they're playing songs faster a minute, two minutes per song. Are songs getting shorter? Have you found that the overall uh, song trend no. on Beatport is shorter? No, but it's funny because for so long, labels would not send us their single edits or their radio edits. And I'm like, send it, you know, put it on the store. It doesn't mean that DJs won't want to play that pop edit because the way that artist constructed that version has a purpose. And if it's on the radio for in your car or your commute, understood, or if it's a video edit, but a good DJ can do, work with whatever they have. They're just tools. So to that point, it's um, there's still on average five to six minute tracks in our catalog um, is your norm. Um, last week I bought a 23 minute song for $1.99. It was great. Um, so um, there's a lot of value there too. But uh, overall, it's just it's what you do with it. It's like your tools, <laughs> CDs or laptops. What are, whatever you're gonna do. I'd like to talk about that that elephant in the room that we we brought up before because I think a lot of times um, uh, the environment. Do we have we have a question back here? Sure. Let's bring yeah. How's it going? Uh, my name is Jim. Uh, I'm a fan and a producer to some extent. So my question is: is uh, are we going to see a lot more sample based music? Like for example, I'm a huge Gold Panda fan, and uh, if you follow a lot of his interviews, like a lot of his samples are self created. He doesn't really pull from any one source. Like he'll find like a distorted, you know, like old broken toy and he'll use that in part of his sets. But then on the opposite end, you have like Avicii who's creating on silence and it's, you know, like a series of a couple chords. So do you find that it's, you're going to find more artists who really like seek out that individual sound? Or are you going to find that, you know, because EDM as a genre has become so commercialized and popularized that you're going to see more of that? Or do you really don't think there's a split and that everything just kind of blends together? It's a good question and a hard question. Um, it's something that we talked about earlier. We specifically said, I'll read from my notes, um, the DJing today is less about sequencing and more about painting with colors. And in that we mean it's not so much about playing this track and then playing this track. It's about sampling in real time. And I think the question you ask is, well, will the samples be something more original? Will people seek to differentiate themselves by finding weird, obscure stuff? Or will our notes become other people's notes? You know, context, the Avicii loop. Oh, I know that. But when combined with um, this loop from over here, it's something new and special. We all know who did that 
the best. It, of course, was Maddion, and it, it, it launched him into international stardom. I don't know. Do you guys have a, a thought on that? I mean, the, the tools are there now for the creativity. So, Ian, your products obviously are makes makes that easier for DJs who... Uh, it doesn't mean you have short attention span as far as a performer goes. You just have a lot that you want to say. So now if you have the ways to do that with using all your fingers or you know, having four decks or 14 different channels or however you're doing that, samplings, I mean, this culture is built on sampling. So this is a momentum of decades, not just the last few years. Um, so you know, the rare samples you know, for all of us who want to tear apart a DJ Shadow album and know what all those records actually came from, you know, that puts you on a path, that puts you on a journey as a fan. And as a producer, same issue. You know, what machines, what synths, what programs, what effects made those sounds you know, we want, for us, we want to see people get lost in that and, and go down that channel to discover great music, more music, more the tools that made them and how things are just messed up and Frankenstein, too. Seth, you had Yeah, a so this is a timely for, for us. Um, we released this one app um, called DJ's Text, DJ's ETXT. It's in the App Store. It's kind of like a launch pad meets texting meets emojis. You choose emojis and... They make sounds. It's really fun. You should download it. And we have a Snoop pack and Apollo Confold pack for 99 cents each, 35 cents of which goes to the artists. Um, and Nick's here um, representing Team Snoop. Um, and, uh, and that's really to kind of create sounds, um, sort of like what uh, Ian was talking about. But we have this other app that we're going to launch at South By. It's essentially a crossfader. And so with it, you'll be able to mix, mix different tracks and mix loops. and we want people to be able to record it and broadcast what they're making. And so we've got a very specific question, which is, should the length of the mixes that someone creates be unlimited, or should it be limited? Um, and there's a healthy debate right now we're having internally, which is, you know, one school of thought, which is mine, is that it should be 60 seconds. Because 140 characters is arbitrary, and the six seconds of Vine is arbitrary, and 60 second mix, why not? And someone else is saying, well, wait a minute. No, it should be three minutes because a good DJ needs three minutes to come up with something that's interesting. But what if you are 15? Can you come up with something that's actually interesting for three minutes? If it's too short, it's not long enough to actually tell a story. So, and yet if you don't have a standard, if it's not fungible, meaning it's you know, different lengths, it's a lot harder to do interesting things with it in terms of making it into building box blocks and allowing them to be ranked and liked up and liked down. Um, but I think this is where the, like, at least for me, like where the rubber hits the road, which is literally how many seconds should a mix be that gets shared and remixed by people? Amanda, do you, you just want to, you reached in, there was a breathe. Um, I don't know. I think I, man, that is, let me put my two cents in on that. I think. I think any amount of time because people are just gonna like what a kid think thinks like what a remix should sound like could be like five seconds like who knows you know and it doesn't really matter it's about them sharing whatever amount of it I don't think anyone's gonna really care and the amount of time doesn't really matter it's about the reactions they get really and the community they built off of that that's how I kind of see that I don't think there really is a Timestamp. I mean, you you can see it with different artists, like Girl Talk, for example. Yeah. Personally, I'd like to see people doing more digging 
uh, I think you get more interesting results. Uh, one of the guys on my staff, his name is Mad Zach. He was actually here with me in, in this room six months ago when we were talking about it. And he's got these really cool sound packs that he creates that are free. People can download them and they just plug right into any four by four grid. Our, our MIDI fighters are very popular for this. And with just 16 buttons, you can kind of play the packs, both drums and bass and synths and create uh, music out of nothing. And they're really, really fun and they're really, really playable. And the most interesting sounds come from the strangest places like he'll go sample a Bach um, you know uh, chorus and just grab like 10 seconds of it but that Bach chorus when turned into a looping pad and detuned so there's like three versions of it uh, dun, 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 is so cool it just has the most unique sound so I hope people uh, will go and dig and create really unique things and not just repurpose the sounds that we um, are already hearing on every stage around the world that's my hope. Hi. Yeah, I want to kind of um, ask a question similar to what you're talking about, um, both on B-Port side and on the DJ side. Um, you know, we're living in a time where anyone can get the same tracks, anyone can find the same tracks, you know, sh they can Shazam it, get it. As far as the future of DJing and being unique and standing out, um, I was wondering how you guys feel about, um, like, they have these, like, tractor remix sets now where they're basically, B-Port is starting to sell the song and you basically essentially have every piece of that song that you can reconstruct, pull out the bass, pull out the drums, just play the vocal, whatever. I'm wondering as far as the future of DJing and being unique, um, if you guys think that's important, that that's part of the future and as far as selling, if it's something you guys see as the future? Yeah, I mean, stems are a huge part of the future. Um, it's, it's kind of the cornerstone of growth for creativity because now the hardware the software is ready you just need content so you no know, one's prevented you from taking a track and sampling it and looping it and you know for last you could do that for for last 20 years it just you have to go through those extra efforts to make that music seamless in your set so it's the time you invest in programming your set making your music different than the other dj is what's going to get you noticed so i think for the future that's that's an absolute path for us to deconstruct you know, with the artist's consent to what that becomes. There's a few on there, but but with the remix culture in general, because we've been doing remix contests for five years, that content's out there. It's just, what are you gonna do with it? So to make it effective, um, there's so much music out there that is, you know, acapellas to loops to breaks, you know, just again, the, the gears there now to use. I want, I want to give the rest of the audience some context so you guys understand what he's talking about. Um, remix sets are these little, again, using a 4x4 four four grid, the label has taken a song and they've broken it into parts. So somebody, if they're using uh, the remix decks and tractor, can kind of rearrange a song rather than just playing it from start to end. Um, and the question I have specifically is, are these things selling? The big challenge was, well, it's great if you can chop up and replay a song, but there's no source material. So now Beatport has started selling these more broken out songs. Are people buying them? Is there a trend there? They are. There's a small trend there, and it's also new as far as like a product goes. Um, I mean, they it, again, it comes down to the DJ and your skill level. If that's is, something, I'm gonna nail you down on this. Like, you want numbers? Uh, no, is, no, is not numbers. The, I just no, want to know the top ten. Are sales of remix decks going through the roof, and and like singles are going down? Are people buying? You know, that's not shift that shift is not there yet okay but if i can answer. jump in um my project just did a uh remix being an artist and a dj like i have no problem doing like the stem or remix competitions because it like 
it drives your project so much. You get the music out to so many people. We had like 700 remixes and like one of the remixes got played like 200,000 times. I mean, it's crazy. And it at, on the artist side, it dri- they're, it's a bunch of people and without any cynicism taking your music and dr- getting the music out to exponential amount of more people that I don't think like a label could really do. And then on the DJ side, it's great because maybe like you are doing like a New York set and you want to do like a house set, but you want it to be your flavor. Having those stems is great. And maybe you're going to do low end theory and like, oh, I'm going to do a Mumatone set because why not? And like a disco set. And I think like because DJs aren't so solidified, like I am a house DJ, I am a techno DJ, like the, um, that you're able to flex that and having stems is the most important part of that. Really. Ian? Yes. So I moved here from New York where I ran a Wall Street um, investment research company. And um, the history of trading is uh, one of des- decimalization, right? So commissions got decimalized. So at first, 20 years ago to, to trade, you know, you had to trade stock in dollars, you know, and then quarters. And now, you, you know, it, you can trade it in um, really, really small increments. Um, and trading commissions have gone down as well. If you think about stems, the way I think about it is, um, you know, uh, an album is, is $10. And then we've gone from albums to tracks that have gotten kind of unbundled. A track might be a dollar. Stems might be 10 cents or 25 cents. So I think it, it, it not that albums don't matter, um, I was telling when we were meeting before this great quote from Jimmy Iovine at this conference last week where Walt Mossberg was talking about how you know his curation is the shuffle button, which was Steve Jobs as well. Just 6,000 songs hit shuffle. Um, and Jimmy talked about when he was working with Bruce Springsteen, Springsteen took six months to choose the right sequence of eight songs. Right? And that's poetic and it's amazing, but it doesn't really apply to my son. Right, he just wants bits and pieces of things that he, you know, this little piece from Swedish House Mafia and this little piece from Calvin Harris, um, and a Bach piece, and you know, the sound of his brother crying, and he wants to remix it into something and then share it. Um, so I think they will continue to go that way. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, there's a really interesting release that came out um, about a month or two ago. The artist name is skipping me. If you guys know it, please yell it out. It wasn't Ben Harper. It was somebody like that. It was somebody really big. And he released his full album in sheet music form. Now, Beck. Beck. Thank you so much. So I'm not claiming sheet music is going to be the future. But I do think putting out music in a reconsumable format is really powerful. So I've, I've partnered with somebody named Amp Live. And we're actually going to be launching a record label in a couple weeks. And the releases of this record label will be very non-traditional. You'll never buy them on Vport. Um, the release What's is... Up? Well, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, we, maybe the f- if you guys supported this kind of format, but the release is just the sheet music, what I consider to be modern sheet music. It's the Ableton session, and you get that, and you replay it, and, and really what you get is just the YouTube video of the person performing and the Ableton session, and it just is everyone's interpretation of that release. And the song is the video, and the release is the Ableton session. It's the full session, everything, all the effects, chaining. Exactly. And, and we're building them in these very playable formats where all you need is a 4x4 four four grid controller, and you can play the song. 
We did that with Mogwai. Actually, we sent the ASD file as a zip file, so it can be done. Yeah. There's a lot on the artist side. There's just a lot more equity to be built rather than driving album sales with stems. The equity is much more. I would say much more important in career building. Mm, that's a great word. What can you d dive into that? What do you mean by equity? Because it, it it's not about album sales. It's about the pop culture of your. Ugh, I'm gonna say it. I tried not to brand. It's <laughs> uh -huh. so gross. I hate it. But everyone says it, so I guess we have to say it. Um, the brand, um, and that's and who you are. The brand being like who you are and what you're doing with art, and the more people can get involved and listen or be re-listening to someone's interpretation of your art, the further your actual career not exploding into outer space and then you just explode and die, which happens a lot, maybe more in major label system, um, actually career building career artist. Mm. Yeah, and there's a lot of great examples of that in the particular area that you're in, Fool's Gold, um, Stone's Throw, where these guys have built, you know, they haven't blown up, they're probably not gonna play skills parties, but they have a solid, solid base of fans with big brand equity that they're gonna be able to capitalize on for 20, 30 years. They'll always have a job. Um, I think we've got five minutes left, so I wanna take a couple questions from the audience. Awesome. All the way in, oh, we've got one Go gentleman ahead. right here first. And I was just really gonna ask, um, how do you, like, so sample-based music is becoming more and more popular to the point where people are like not just sampling a portion, but they're, uh, they're messing with it, and you'll get like a sample that's been um, brought up and down in pitch, and they'll almost make a phrase out of it. How do you, like, as far as DJ tools go, how do you feel this affects a live performance? Like, creating this music isn't something you can just perform and, and you know, hit record in live. It's like you're kind of, like, composing is writing in all the notes and doing all these technical things to the point where a live DJ set is is either you know pre-written or it's two sets that you're sort of blending between with like a CDJ or something like that. Do you see that that is the future, or do you think that people are going to try and make tools that make kind of real-time performance possible? You asked the absolute correct question. Think of 20 years ago when you recorded Jimi Hendrix. The recording of Jimi Hendrix was basically a, capturing what you would hear on stage. It was one and the same. The process by which he wrote the album, recorded the album, and would play on stage were the same. And now we've got this big divide where the process by which you perform and the process by which you record are totally different skill sets and totally different processes. And I would like to see them unified so that those skills and those processes uh, translate across both mediums, which is the whole point behind Beatmaker is that what you see in, the, in a YouTube video is what you see on stage their one-to-one -one parody. And only people who can actually do that will be on the label. So what do you guys think? I just think it's so ingrained in the, the culture that it's, it's, it's something that's been just going on forever that it's, it's not really making a, a A or B case. It, it's just omnipresent. I think the, the skill of you, what samples you pick is what will stand your music out from the next track. But for live performance, again, like basically technology had to catch up with innovation and now people are just taking that in their own hands when it comes to actually making the content. You I mean, can get as freaky as you want now. Oh, sorry. I was just saying that it's, it's a lot harder to play to a crowd. I mean, sure, people who have Ableton Live sets, you know, they have multiple tracks they switch between to, as they gauge the crowd, but it's, it's still pre-composed. You can't really 
go solo in the moment or like and go do something because you feel like it's it's have you seen him play the midi fighter no, where, where, the well, where do the buttons you go? Absolutely I mean, there, can. Are, there are definitely spots where you can solo with a unique instrument, but what I'm saying is like the main part of your composition isn't something you can play in real time. Yes, I, I would actually agree I, with you. I absolutely disagree with that. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, yeah. Um, someone who beta tested the software and was, uh, uh, knows Monolake and, and the theory and the philosophy behind the software, and especially with Max for Live, I can completely disagree with it as an instrument and it can be played real time and it's happening every day all day long and, and it does not have to be uh, the technology is really at the point where it it is completely uh, emotion without programming without thinking it's emotion and playable immediately absolutely 100 percent it's a, it's a very good question and it's a good discussion and it brings up something we talked about earlier which is playing on the grid or off the grid to the sequence or off the sequence um, I agree Ableton is a great live tool it's called live you can play it live you can jam all day long but you're largely going to be jamming to a preset grid or over parts that have already been pre-created sure there's a lot of ways in which you can truly play live in the moment but to go totally off the grid, you know, like on a, on a big breakdown where the drummer is just cascading down, increasing the tempo, and and really almost failing live in the moment, that's that's we're really have to disagree here. really hard. Yeah, we're just gonna have to agree to disagree. Here. Okay, <laughs> we've got a few minutes left, uh, so I just want to take another question. My question is about um, licensing, oh. and <laughs> obviously the the genre employs a lot of use of samples and sometimes they, they come from outside of your own production. So I was just curious how you handle sampling and what, um, and licensing your samples and if you were a DJ and you were going to offer your stems, what channels would you go through to have other people license them and that's pretty much it. That's a great question. I wish we'd spent more time on this topic. This was something that is very much shifting the ground underneath us in terms of the legality of sampling. If you guys, anyone can speak to that and what is changing right now that would shift the market? So I went, as part of Turntable, I went through nine months of getting Turntable licensed by all the majors. Turntable doesn't practice in samples as much, although there's a, a very heavy a mashup community, which was definitely problematic with the labels. Um, but definitely the labels, I mean, that took a lot of time, it took a lot of money. Um, net, net, when turntables started, it was available in every single country. And it was magical when you'd go into a room, and it would be a hip-hop room with people from Brazil and Tokyo and from Detroit. It was really special, right? In a way that, you know, if more different people are using Spotify, your experience doesn't change, right? In terms of DJs, you know, we're not artists, although we do some artistic things. I didn't want to be a licensed music service. I wanted to live on top of SoundCloud, on top of Spotify, on top of other people's services, the future FM. My sense with the labels, there's a very delicate dance right now as it relates to DJ culture. I was talking before, it's like a Mexican standoff where if you as, an, if, if you as a distributor or you as a service or you as an artist start to really push it and start to monetize based on other people's content without compensating them and by giving a sort of big fuck you to the labels, you're, you're going to get in trouble. At the same time, if the labels are too aggressive, they may set a precedent legally that then prevent, you know, they, the last thing a label wants to do legally is lose a court ruling, which then establishes precedent so they can't go after any others. 
So everybody feels to me they're just kind of dancing around this. Nothing is flared up yet. It's kind of bound to happen. There's going to be some case. There's going to be some online service. There's going to be some breakout DJ hit that is so clearly a, a mashup of some some a Bieber song or something, and it's just gonna it's gonna break. Um, that's my sense. I'm not again. I think there are some interesting technologies that fingerprint that try to give information back to the artists and the publishers and the labels. Obviously, Beatport, you've been doing this. For a long time? Yeah, I mean, basically they're products. So products have to have metadata and products have to have writers and publishers. But in general, like the future needs to be is that stems need to be identified as products. They are in our system. So it's it's trackable and it can be can be sold and it can be put into uh, into uh, a sales report and people can search for that track by by its code. So Awesome. What a transition. So, head to the spring room for the next topic. Uh, I think that's a natural conclusion. I want you guys to give yourself a hand. Big round of applause. Thank you for coming. And everyone on the panel, thank you guys for your great contribution.